0: that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy this message. And if you have your Bibles, Galatians chapter 5, we've been looking at the fruit of the Spirit. And we come to a fruit or an aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. And you know, Dan, I'm glad you're here this morning because a few weeks ago when I was speaking on the fruit of the Spirit, I was focusing on the fact that the fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit manifests what I referred to as these nine aspects. And I said, it's sort of like a diamond. And on the one hand, I said, I wish Dan was here so he could clarify this. Then I thought, you know, it's good that he isn't here so that he doesn't contradict or whatever I would say. But what I had said was that like a diamond, the fruit of the Spirit, like a diamond, there are various facets, aspects, facets, what's the term, am I right? Yes. Facets. And you could look through each facet and you'd see the entirety of the diamond. He's not agreeing with me. He, oh, you like that? <laughs> so so the thought was, through every or each of the aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, you would see all aspects at one and the same time, which is a manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit, for it is the fruit of the Spirit. So it's so like you can look through every aspect of that diamond and you're really seeing the entirety of, of the diamond. Anyway, that's sort of the thing I was thinking about. And hopefully it's close in some regard. Very good, thank you. (laughs) But in any case, we're looking at this particular aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is kindness. So let me just read these to you, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. This word kindness is an interesting word because it... Uh, reaches down into the inner soul of the individual. It sort of characterizes how they are and how they then behave. The other aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, they focus on our character, being loving, peace, patience, etc. But kindness now reaches out from within us to those around us. The idea of kindness, the word means to have tender love in our hearts. It's tender It's a sense of easiness, smoothness, being approachable, being receptive, being willing to receive others, to reach out to others, and to provide for others to it. Not to be bitter. So a kind person is a smooth person. Here in California, that that seems to work, doesn't it? Sort of like a person that's approachable. A person that doesn't have a sting to him. A person that doesn't come across in a bitter, biting sort of way. Rather, he is one or she is one that is kind, smooth, loving, considerate, concerned for another. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this passage is Yeshua is telling us how hard it is for people to change their old ways. He says, and I, I read this and reread it and reread it and tried to figure what is verse 39 really saying. And then I got out all these commentaries, and you know, this is, you know, that's what I thought he meant, but I didn't think that could be right. But that's what he says no one after drinking the old and becomes familiar with the old ways is comfortable with change, is comfortable with new ways. And one of the reasons why so many of the religious leaders, where combat of of Yeshua was not because they had a good argument not to embrace Messiah. They didn't have good arguments. But the problem was they did not want to give up their old ways. They did not want to change. They did not want to recognize that what they were embracing was no longer valid for where the Lord now was taking them. And so I find that to be of an interest to me personally. Because all of us are somewhat uh, somewhat avoidance, avoiders of change. And yet what Messiah is telling us is that this is a typical characteristic, but one that needs to sort of be put aside in order to move on with God. When you think about the scriptures, there's continual change going on through God's workings among his people. You know, when he called Abraham out of Ur, the Chaldeans, it wouldn't be too long where the mantle is passed down to Isaac and Jacob. Changes begin to emerge. Not only do changes occur there, but then Israel goes into slavery, Moses comes on the scene, and now a new leader arises, and changes begin to emerge. The law is now given. After Moses, you've got Joshua and the inheritance of the land and the settlement of the land, and changes begin to emerge, and all throughout history, and now you have messiah's on the scene changes need to take place among messiah, and now, two thousand years since his coming, changes begin to permeate the world of faith. Think about how different, or I could think about how different faith expression is from the time I came to faith in the '70s to now in the 21st century. And we avoid change. We're resistant to change. And we have to remember the message remains the same. Methods always change. And what went on in the 70s that was important for me, one of the major changes was the changes in music as a way of worship. Up until the 1970s, and I, wasn't a, I came to faith through a, a very traditional church, everyone got out their hymnals. All we had was a piano player, and that's what we sang to and that's the way it was. And years before that, it was the organs, the pipe organs. You know, and some of those organs back in the 17th century, whatever, they had guys that were this there with the billows that would just be pumping so that the organ player could play. And so it was like organ music. Nothing against organ music. But things change. And in the 70s now, what was it, Larry Norman? He said, why does the devil have to have all the good music? You know, for those of us growing up, that's the way we looked at it. You know, who wants to play these hymns? They were just, you know, dull and dreary. And I've come to appreciate them to some degree. Listen, I'm talking to a crowd that's 40 and up. And it's hard for us to change our ways. We like that sound. But the fact of the matter is, Yeshua said, even the religious leaders of his day saw that what Yeshua was providing was worse than what they had. And that what they had was better. And we're not going to change and embrace it. Now, I didn't want to get off on that so much, but it was something that struck me in this passage. But the important thing from my point of view this morning is that the word for better is the word smooth. It's like this is the wine that is smoother tasting. And no one wants to taste something new because they're set in their ways. And then as a result, they miss out on what God is doing, right? They miss out on what God has provided. But the word here is the same word for kindness. Now turn another passage. Look at Matthew chapter 11. And this is perhaps the most beautiful of all invitations in all of scripture. And Yeshua said in verse 25, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me, to my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. How privileged we are that the Son of God would reveal his Father to you and I, that we would embrace him. And in verse 28, he then gives this invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word easy is the same word translated in Galatians as kindness. So he says, my yoke is kind. My yoke is not meant to be detrimental to you. My y- yoke is not meant to put a burden and weight on you, but rather it is light and it is easy and it is ultimately kind. Now, one last passage, if I, if I might. If you look at the book of Titus, the letter to Titus, found after Second Timothy, just before Philemon or Hebrews. And in chapter 3, Paul writes, At one time, we too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, the word kindness, that's what it is, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. So what I want you to see here is that the kindness of God displays itself in loving acts of generosity and mercy. God's love is expressed by works of generosity and mercy. And so in his kindness and out of his love, You and I, who were the enemies of God, you and I, who are alienated from God, he drew us unto himself. So the fruit of the Spirit, one aspect, is kindness. Therefore, if we are children of God, the Spirit of God dwells in us, according to Romans chapter 8, and therefore, we have kindness supernaturally in us, because the Spirit of God is present in us. And so it is now for us to allow that kindness to flow out from us in loving acts of generosity and mercy. Kindness, I think, focuses on the kinds of external, outer needs that individuals have. Kindness are loving acts that meet the needs that other people have through acts of great generosity and mercy. I think one of the reasons why those that are younger, the millennials, the 20s, the 30 crowd, are in the kinds of, of churches or communities they're in is because they're concerned about society. And they're concerned about the needs that are external and out there. The reason why we're seeing these marches in Ferguson and in Oakland and in New York and in all these places because of the deaths of these individuals by these police officers, some of which I'm very much concerned about, very much concerned about. And I realize all the challenges police officers have. I'm not trying to make a judgment call on the ramifications of the grand jury not indicting or whatever. But my point is this. And while there is a whole media blitz going on and we know that there are liberal establishments pushing the agenda, I got all that. Nevertheless, the reason why these young people, and if you look in the crowds, they are young people, white, black, and otherwise, is because there's a concern about social injustice. And there ought to be such a concern, first and foremost, in the body of Messiah. In fact, the scriptures seem to indicate, I say seem, maybe I should say it does indicate that to some degree the proof of our faith is seen in our acts of mercy and generosity to others. In Matthew 25, what does Yeshua say? When you saw me in prison, you visited me. When you saw I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When you saw that I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Now, I understand this is judgment on the millennial, and I understand its relationship to the Jewish people. But the point about that passage is the meeting of needs of individuals, whoever they might be. And when we read what the prophets say over and over again, it's those who do justly, who are concerned about the orphans and widows, the poor and underprivileged, and those that have greater needs than ourselves. So the effects of the fall affected us spiritually in our relationship to God. It's affected us psychologically as human beings with each other, ourselves. It's affected us socially with one another. That's why there's wars. That's why there's conflicts. That's why there's hatred, strife. It has affected us physically and with regard to the world in which we live. Now, here's the thing that struck me. Take a look at Luke. And turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And in Luke chapter 1, we read of the birth of Messiah. We have Zechariah's song. We have the birth of the forerunner, John the Baptist. And at the end of chapter one of Luke, look what it says of our Messiah. It says the child grew and became strong in four areas. He became strong in spirit. His relationship to God grew ever stronger. Our relationship to God grows ever weaker if we don't are not, if we don't avail of ourselves of the grace and mercy of God in saving us. We grow further away from God as time goes on. Unless God intervenes. But look at Messiah. No, he grew spiritually. Whoops, I got the wrong passage, don't I? Whoops. Because that was about John, right? So, hold on, hold on. uh, I'm sorry, chapter 2. Did I say 2? That was chapter 1. Chapter 2, look at verse 51. I'm sorry. He said, Then Yeshua goes down to Nazareth with his his parents. He was obedient to him. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. Chapter 2, verse 52. And Yeshua grew... First of all, in wisdom, so he grew psychologically, he grew mentally, intellectually, emotionally, that area that has been broken in our own lives due to sin in the garden. It says of Messiah, but for him, he grew psychologically. Further, he grew in stature, he grew physically. Thirdly, he grew in favor with God spiritually, and he grew in favor with mankind, men and women. He grew socially. Just the opposite of what happened in the garden. We died and were alienated in those four areas, but Messiah comes into the world and he grows in those early areas. Why? Because he's the one that's going to enable us to be restored. Now, here's another thing that struck me. I'm just thinking about these four components of our fall. The kindness of God. And the fruit of the Spirit that is kindness is loving acts of generosity in benefit for another. But kindness focuses particularly on the external circumstances and needs that we have. And so it focuses on the social issues that are in our world. Kindness is generosity to people who are hurting. People who are in need. Now, how does God address these four areas? This is really kind of interesting to think about. It says of Messiah, who grew in his relationship to God, his relationship to others, his relationship to himself, and that he grew physically. It says of Messiah that he was mighty in word and in deed. Those are two areas that scripture speaks about. He was mighty in word and deed. Now, if you think of the gifts of the Spirit, as recorded in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, you can divide the gifts of the Spirit into two kinds of gifts. They are word gifts, and they are deed gifts. So the gift of apostleship, the gift of prophecy, the gift of teaching, the gift of pastoring, the gift of exhortation are word gifts word gifts address the psychological and spiritual needs you and I have words are what presents the gospel the good news the means of being united with god word gifts address that result of the fall that ex- that affected us spiritually Word gifts address that part of the fall that affected us psychologically. But there are other gifts. They are deed gifts. Gifts of mercy. Gifts of service. Gifts of healing. Gifts of administration. They are gifts that are meant to touch the needs of people. The needs that people have address the physical Uh, the challenge that the fall has affected us physically and that has uh, addressed us with regard to uh, just simply the the needs that we have. So now we ask, why are the gifts of the Spirit so critical? They're critical because God is seeking to bring redemption into our world. Redemption is not just getting from Earth to heaven. Redemption is being restored in all of these areas. Where we experience a restoration spiritually, where we receive a restoration psychologically, where we receive a restoration physically, and where we receive a restoration socially. These gifts are meant to address them. But here's the other thing when you look at the offices in the body of Messiah, there are two offices the scriptures speak of. They are elders and there are deacons. The elders are tasked with the word issues. They're to be involved, as it says in Ephesians 6, prayer and the word of God. Deacons are to be concerned with the physical, social needs That are in the body. Does that make sense? So we've got the gifts of the spirit that address the psychological, spiritual. We have gifts that address the physical and social. We have offices in the body that to address the psychological and spiritual, elders. And offices in the body that address the physical and social needs, the deacons. Why do we have those needs? Because of the fall. What has Messiah done? He grows in all those areas. And he is mighty in word and deed in order to meet all the needs that individuals have. The fruit of the Spirit, kindness, is a fruit that is to be connected to others. It's a fruit that's to meet the needs of others with great, great generosity. And so how do we develop kindness? How do we get on board with meeting the physical and social needs. That's what kindness is concerned about. And so here's the thought. In Galatians, it says, we are to bear one another's burdens. Now, when you bear another's burden, some of that heaviness comes on our own shoulders. If we do not give... To the degree to which the burden is felt on our shoulders, we haven't given. That's what I think scripture is saying. I think scripture is telling us, when are we being generous? Here's a thought that I had. You know, in the ancient world, there wasn't a bar or a line of poverty. You know, like, what do they call it? You know, like the poverty line. If you make under so much money, you're considered to be a person living below the poverty line. They didn't have that in the ancient world, right? There's no poverty line. There's no amount of income a person had that denoted them as being poor or wealthy. So what ultimately determines the poverty of somebody or the wealth of somebody? And what it really comes down to are choices that can be made. A person who is wealthy has more options. He can live on this side of town or that side of town. He can eat out or not eat out. He can travel here or not travel there. A wealthier person has more options. A poorer person has little options. You think about in the congregation, the poorer person can only give the widow's mite. It may be all they have, but that's all they can give. So how do you know when you're generous? It's not the amount you give. It's the burden you bear because of the amount you give. How do you know when you're generous? It isn't the amount of time you give. It's the amount of time you lose because of the time you give. In other words, generosity is measured in what hurts you as a result of what you give, either financially or Time-wise. What hurts you? Remember, we're bearing one another's burdens. If you're going to bear a burden, that means if I've got 100 pounds, you're picking up 20. Right? It doesn't mean that you just say, hey, you're doing good. (laughs) Keep walking. You look great. You know. If you're going to help me bear the burden, that means you're picking up some of the load. Which means some of the load weighs you down as well. So what we need to ask ourselves is, has our giving Financially or time-wise? Has it weighed us down? Has it hurt us? Or has it just come off the top and life goes on as it was going on? If it is, you're not exhibiting kindness. Because that's what kindness is. Kindness is the extreme generosity that is empowered by the Spirit of God to give in such a way that it hurts you in your giving. And it helps another in their receiving. That's what it means when Yeshua said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I know, you know, one of the challenges here is, and we dealt with this, Chuck will tell you, we dealt with this when we uh, met as, as elders. Here in Los Angeles, you can get on any ramp, and there's somebody at the bottom of the ramp who has a sign up saying, please help me. Or you can go to any major city. Maybe you don't even have to go to major cities. I was in Annapolis, and there were plenty of folks in the Annapolis area that were asking for financial help. And I have to tell you, there are some times, I try to fight this, maybe I shouldn't put it that way, but there are times when I just feel I need to give in these instances. And sometimes it, it happens. You know, I'll just walk down the street, someone says it, you know, and I just feel compelled. But here's the thing. There's a difference, and this is why I was trying to help our elders understand, at least from my point of view, some time ago. There's a difference between reacting and acting. There's a difference between reacting out of guilt and acting with a purpose and a plan. Because all of us only have a limited amount of resources. No matter how wealthy we are, unless you're Bill Gates, I guess, no matter how wealthy you are, Or how poor we are. We have a limited surplus that God has entrusted to us. So we have to be wise and thoughtful about our giving. And we don't have time to get into all of that. But I'm not suggesting when I say we should give in such a way that we experience being uh, inconvenienced. Whether it's financially, time-wise, or otherwise. Or in our talents. Which I believe we should. We should be. But I'm not saying now when you leave, every person you see on the street, you better start emptying out your wallets. I'm not saying that. There may be occasions you feel so led. That's between you, your conscience, and God. But what I'm saying is there needs to be a plan and a purpose because we need to prioritize in our giving. But once we've done that, we need to give in a matter in which there's sacrifice. That's what kindness is about, And the motivation is not guilt. The motivation is, look what God has lavished upon us. As John says, that we would be called the children of God. And the whole motivation for giving that way is the sense down deep in our hearts without any reservations about it. That God has given us everything that there is for salvation in this life and in the world to come. That's what's got to grip us. That's why in the past, people went willingly to their deaths. Because they had such a strong sense of what God has already provided, provided for them and when we have that strong sense everything else really begins begins to pale when we see people as precious when we see people that way then acts of kindness will flow in the manner in which the scriptures describe Yeshua tells us, the poor you will always have with you, so we'll always have opportunity to do acts of kindness in bearing one another's burdens. And in such a matter, we'll meet needs among us. And I guarantee you, the thing that opens people's hearts to the consideration of the good news is not our... Intellectual apologetics and our defense of the faith, although those are important. The thing that really moves people and draws them is when they see individuals loving like that, caring like that, and being kind to others like that. That's the, those are the kinds of things, I think, that particularly draw people to consider How could you be doing such things? You know, in the ancient world, the thing that distinguished the believers from the Roman pagans, they thought the believers were really weird. And they thought that they were weird for two reasons. They only had sex in marriage. That's really weird, you know? I mean, they don't go to the temple and go with the temple prostitutes. They just have sex with their wives. It's just weird. You know, in L.A., they'd say that's weird, too. And the other thing they said was weird. They care about people who are nobodies. They care about babies that were being left to die because they did not want to raise them. They cared about people who were begging on the streets. They cared for one another rather than attempted to trample upon one another and take what they could get. And so in the ancient world, they said the weird thing about believers was not what they believed, although they thought it was strange. But the weird thing was the way they behaved and how they treated others. So the fruit of the Spirit is kindness, which is a fruit that's related to how we treat others. And the way we are to treat them is to bear one another's burdens which means to absorb some of the burden while we provide for them so let's pray while I'm praying the ushers can come forward Father we're thankful for your challenging word this day it's challenging for all of us because in a universal sense we're all pretty wealthy here in the United States there are some Father that are truly struggling and perhaps even in our own congregation. And so, Father, help us to have good plans in place and we're grateful for our benevolent ministry that does plan and have policies in place and has reasons and methods by which we can help others and utilize the benevolent funds that are contributed to Beth Ariel in a responsible manner and not just in a reacting way. And so we're thankful that we can do that. And then, Father, we need to take inventory of what you've provided with each of us individually. And, Lord, you have provided us with much. And so, Father, may we develop a way in this congregation to truly be kind to the unbelievers around us, that it may draw them into a relationship with you, as well as exhibiting this kind of generosity to one another. So, Father, we do this because you have done so much for us. And we are grateful for your tender heart and your tender mercies toward us. May we exhibit the same toward others. Help us with that, we pray. In Messiah's name, we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L.org.